are listening to Shining Star Community Church English Ministry Sunday Message. Please visit us at www.shiningstar.life. So it seems like the harder Paul tried to get people to understand his teaching, the less they actually understood. And so we have Paul being accused of teaching license rather than liberty because some people believe what Paul was teaching them was that they are free from the law and that they could go ahead and live any way they wanted. They could live wicked lives. They could live lawless lifestyles. These are the people who essentially took little bits and pieces of what Apostle Paul was teaching and assumed that, you know what, they could just do whatever they wanted with it and say this was true, this wasn't true, and so on and so forth. So we know from the get-go of this chapter that the first line here carries a lot of significance. In fact, most of my sermon will be based off of the first line. First verse, for freedom Christ has set us free. Turn to your neighbor and say, we're free in Christ. But let me address what freedom in Christ doesn't mean. He did not set us free from having authority over us. Remember when God set Israel free from slavery in Egypt? It was so that they could leave and, and be, find freedom from Egypt so that they could belong to the Lord. Right? Enslaved, he would free them from, the, from their enslavement so that they could belong to the Lord. So we are set free not just to be alone not just to do our own thing and be by ourselves in this world. We're set free to belong to Christ. You're free to belong to Christ as his chosen people. Christ is our authority. Amen? He's our authority. His word is our authority. That's why I remember having a, a, a conversation with this one individual who said, I don't need to go to church. And I don't need to belong to a church. I can have my own worship at home. And they think they're free to do what they want in the name of grace. And they'll call the burden of church attendance as legalistic. Pastor David, you're, you're meeting with a bunch of legalistic people. And Pastor David, you're legalistic as well. Because you know what? You don't need to. You're free in Christ to worship wherever and meet wherever and do all that stuff. But here's the thing. They clearly don't understand who their authority is and what it means to submit to Christ. Because... Colossians chapter 3, verse 16 states, Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, through hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. How can you admonish and how can you hold each other accountable and how can you corporately and congregationally worship songs and hymns and praise if you're by yourself? Do you know who wrote that? Apostle Paul wrote that, and he wrote it to the church in Colossae, to the church. He's saying, make sure you guys meet together. Make sure you guys admonish each other. Make sure you guys build each other up and worship together. Being free isn't being free from the authority of God, okay? Also, Christ has not set us free from the distinction between right and wrong. He didn't set you free so that you can flow into the sea of relativism in the name of being politically, politically correct and tolerant. He has not given you the freedom to pick and choose what's true for you and what's not true for them. From the beginning of the Bible to the end, Old Testament and New, God had established absolute moral truth, and there is no way to escape it. God is right, we are wrong. That's what Pastor Lim always says, and it's quite humbling. So let's repeat it. Put your hand on your chest and say, God is right. And I am wrong. 
And you're probably thinking, well, what did I do today? Here's another point that may hit closer to home. Christ has not set us free from our own struggle with sin, meaning we can't just do what we please. I'm a Christian, therefore I fall under grace, so now I can go ahead and, and have the license to live and do whatever I want. If there is a sin issue in your life, Christ has given you the freedom, okay, but in that freedom, the power to battle to, and toil against your flesh and sin. He has, give, he has empowered you to fight and fight and battle against the sin. Freedom in Christ is not a license to sin. Freedom in Christ means that he has given you the power to vanquish sin in your life, to overcome sin. Christ has not set us free from the hard work of obedience either. Jesus repeatedly calls his disciples to obey, obey, and obey. That's why the Christian's life is more than saying, yes, Jesus, I believe. But that belief must be validated by your actions in obedience. You can't just say, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian. Well, how do you live? If you live completely contrary to the teachings of Christ and Scripture, then guess what? Maybe you're not a Christian. Christ has definitely set us free, but he did not make everything easy for us because obedience is definitely difficult. Living in life as a Christian, it is hard. It's not some easy thing. That's why when we do, um, when I interview people who've just come to know the Lord and accepted Christ or those who are interested in baptism, I don't just say, hey, yeah, you, you profess faith in Christ Jesus. Now go ahead and let's dunk you in the water and now you can go ahead and start the membership class and all that good stuff. No, no, no. I tell them the cost of discipleship. I tell them what it means to follow after Christ every single day. It's hard. The Christian life is still a lot of hard work. Also, he has not set us free from being accountable for our actions. We tend to think that freedom means we can do whatever we want and never answer for it. But God says that both now and on Judgment Day, we are accountable for what we do and don't do. In other words, you will reap what you sow. And if you're a child of God and you're in sin right now, know this. Stop. Otherwise, God, your father, will discipline you because he loves you. Have you ever heard that from your parent? I do this because I love you. You're like, and then the other thing was, it hurts me more than it hurts you. You're like, yeah, right, and stop hitting me, right? The Lord, he, he will rebuke and he will discipline his children because he loves you. He loves you. Lastly, Christ has not set us free from the not yet part of our salvation, Meaning, we as Christians, we keep, we keep living and thinking like as if everything God wants to bless us with must be done here and now. So you think that everything God has rolled his sleeves up for and has done his entire work starting from creation, all his masterful, redemptive plan and stuff, focusing on you, he's thinking, okay, I'm doing all this stuff so that, so that David can go ahead and get that, that consulting job. Or so that David can go ahead and get married. That's, that's my hope and dream for him. Or so that David can go ahead and, and pursue that great worldly pleasure and live a hedonistic lifestyle and just experience all sorts of things in the world. That's what I really want from do you think that's what do you think that's what God wants for you? Do you think that's the limit of his blessings? That's the extent of his blessings? No, he has so much more for you. The American dream, it pales in comparison to the dreams of the Lord, to what his ambition is for you. And so God, he's preparing us for more than what you have right now and what, more than what you want right now. Right now, you may experience some good things, relative comfort, health, financial stability, but God has more for you. Turn to your neighbor and say, God has more for you. So what does he say? He says, even though you don't have it all yet right now, he says, 
I call you to wait in hope. Wait in hope. Not for more riches, not for more uh, career success. He says, wait for me because I'm more. Wait for me because I'm more. Even though you don't see everything clearly in your life, you're thinking, why is this going on in my life? Why are these relationships broken? Why, are, why, are this, why is it so hard to climb this corporate ladder? Or why is it so difficult for me to accomplish this diploma or whatever? All these things, God says, walk by faith. Take your time. Trust me, he says. Whatever issue that you're going through, he says, walk by faith. Even if, even if you don't see everything clearly. We're also called to keep believing God's word even when it seems like his promises are an impossibility. So freedom in Christ doesn't mean that you get everything you want and, and, all, and all the issues in your life get resolved. No. Freedom in Christ means that you can have hope in him. That what he has is far better than anything that you could want. So don't misunderstand the freedom with which Christ has set us free. Freedom in Christ doesn't mean no authority or no moral absolutes or no accountability or no direction for life or nothing to look forward to. Christ has set us free. And I'd like to share a few, I think, profound ways that we read through Scripture, that we find in Scripture that, that means to be set free in Him. First is this. We all need to understand something here. When someone of significance, let's say your spouse, your husband, wife, your child, your parent, dear friend, when they give you a present, as thoughtful and as wonderful as that present might be, if you had a choice to choose between the gift and the giver of the gift, who would you choose or what would you choose? Obviously the person, right? Obviously, right? <laughs> okay. You would pick the giver because it's, it's such a silly question, but of course, the giver is far more important. We all need to understand that our life's purpose is for one thing only. It's to know God. It's to glorify God. Can you, can you say that? That's, by the way, that's something that even law Christians have a hard time admitting. Because they think the Christian life, the purpose of the Christian life is centered on them. It is not. They think the, the purpose of their lives is centered on their salvation. It is not. The purpose of our lives is ultimately, ultimately for the glory of God and subordinately is for our salvation. Ultimately for the glory of God. So turn to your neighbor and say, I know the meaning of life. It's for the glory of God. So when your friends ask, they're like, man, I just wish I knew the meaning of life. You're like, I know. The giver is far more important, and it's not just a gift. It's not, it's not about buying a big house or even about getting married as much as you want both of that. It's not about adding that second zero to your, to your salary, to your income. It's, it's more than that. Our purpose in life is more than just getting to a prestigious firm or, or school or Ivy League school. It's more than experiencing all the pleasures of the world. All things in life are created things. Everything in life is created from feelings and objects to praise, recognition, to even people. Everything is created. It is made. So that means there's something better than what the world offers. God. We want God. To know God is the greatest blessing and joy. Amen? Amen. But not everyone will be able to find it. In fact, no one in the world should be able to find it. Why? Because we are depraved people. We're totally opposite from God. There's no reason and no way that we can get to Him. Now, more and more, as I, as I kind of go on my Christian journey and figure out and try to understand what it means to be a Christian, what it means to know God too, I think one thing you have to really understand is this. You start not with yourself, okay? Uh, much to what Oprah 
would say. She would say, start from here. No, no, no. Don't start here because this is where the problem's at. Okay? You start with God. You start with God, and then once you see God, once you know God, you begin to see and know who you are. And the more I get to know God, the more I realize I, I find out who I am. I am a depraved person. And you know what? After having a child and another one on the way, I get a clearer picture of what that depravity looks like because it starts really young. You know? So uh, I made up a few things. It's called the property laws of a toddler. In other words, this is what my daughter thinks when it comes to things of, that she claims is her property. Okay? One, if I like it, it's mine. Two, if it's in my hand, it's mine. Three, if I can take it from you, it's mine. Four, if I had it a little while ago, it's mine. Five, if it's mine, it must never appear to be yours in any way. Six, if I'm doing or building something, all the pieces are mine. Seven, if it looks just like mine, it's mine. Eight, if I saw it first, it's mine. Nine, if you are playing with something and you put it down, it's automatically mine. <laughs> Ten, if it's broken, you can have it. <laughs> That's it. I remember first holding my daughter, and when she saw my, my little shiny watch, what'd she do? Did she say, wow, Dad, that's a cool watch. I hope you keep it for a long time and, and use it as an heirloom or whatever. No, she tried to yank it off my wrist. She's depraved. It's true. It's just a fact of life. How many, we, we have to teach our children good manners. Is it? Do we have to teach them bad manners? No. Just the other day, my wife, she's in Alabama visiting her mother. She's in the hospital right now. And so yesterday, I didn't have my partner to, to help me and bring the law down. And so as, as my daughter is eating, I see her feet plop on top of the dinner table, and she's just snacking away. And I said, don't do that. And she looks at me, and she goes, and she puts one foot down. Have I ever done that? Never. Where did that come from? Her depravity. <laughs> it's our heart, you see. We all, all, all have sin. A Jewish Holocaust survivor stepped in and watched a part of Adolf Eichmann's trial. Eichmann was a Nazi war criminal, SS uh, lieutenant colonel, and he was one of the major organizers of the actual Holocaust. Now, the Jewish man, when he came into the trial, he burst into tears, and, and uh, someone next to him said, your anger must be unbearable. But the survivor said, no, it's not anger, because the longer I sit here, the more I realize I have a heart like his. I want him to die. Now realize I have a heart like his. You see, we need God, people, because we are sinful through and through. Somerset Maham, the, the writer, once said this, if I wrote down every thought I have ever thought and every deed I have ever done, men would call me a monster of depravity. Let's be honest. If, if someone video recorded every moment of your day from the moment that you were born till now, would you ever broadcast it on YouTube? No way. Even as a pastor, I wouldn't want to even show a minute of it. Absolutely not. What would people call you if they knew your every thought and every deed? Now, don't think that just because you're a nice guy or a nice person that you're generally quite charitable and, and generous and loving that you don't need God. C.S. Lewis once said this, A world of nice people, content in their own niceness, looking no further, turned away from God 
would be just as desperately in need of salvation as a miserable world and might even be more difficult to save. You see, the prodigal son realized that he had issues and he knew that he didn't deserve his father's grace. But yet he went then. He went and humbly, broken, with contrition said, I don't deserve you. God, Father, would you bring me back? But the older son said this, I deserve it. I deserve everything good. How come you're, you're graciously lavishing your ring, your clothes, your, your, you're giving him the fat and calf, and you won't give me a single thing when I deserve it? You see, we're sinful through and through. We need freedom in Christ because to not have it would mean bondage to the world and captive to our sins. If we can all agree that God is who we need, then we need to understand that we cannot get to him on our own. And if you understand that we cannot get to him and do anything apart from God to get to God, then you understand the freedom that Christ gives us, and that freedom becomes more important than any other freedom in anything else. And so this is it. If the freedom in Christ doesn't mean that you get to do whatever you want willy-nilly, then what does freedom in Christ mean? It means that he has set us free from the requirements of the law. Remember, the law was the guardian or the, or the schoolmaster that was designed to point us to Christ. Many people might say that we still need to do this and follow that rule or follow that law in order to be found acceptable in the eyes of God, but that's false and that's condemning. We're free from following the, the requirements of the law. Secondly, we're free from the idea that we have to earn God's favor by keeping the law. Now, now, even from the first days of Adam and Eve to Noah and Abraham and to us, salvation has never once been earned by law-keeping. It has always been about grace. Salvation has always been about grace, about God giving you, about God choosing you, about God loving you, about God extending his mercy and grace upon you. But the Jewish customs of the day became obsessed about living under the law and earning God's favor. Why? Why is it that you and I love to, to follow rules and regulations and these type of things and saying, hey, look at me, I've read the entire Bible over the year. Or, hey, look at me, look at how many times I come to church every single time. Or look at me, look how put, my life, put, uh, put together my life is. Or look how I don't have any financial burdens because I trust in God. Or look at me and how wonderful and healthy I am and fit I am because I trust in God and all these things. Why do we do that? Because it all stems from self-righteousness and pride. In other words, I am holier than thou. So because I'm doing better than you, I now have a visible standard of measurement to see how well I'm doing, i.e., I'm doing well because you're not. That's what we're saying. I'm doing well because clearly you're not, and I'm measuring myself. It's called holiness comparison or comparative holiness. Why are we favored by God? Because you're good looking? Because you live in the D.C. area? There's no reason but by his grace. We are able to love him, not so that God will love us, but because God first loved us. Thirdly, we're set free from the guilt of sin. Now, guilt is a very real thing. I don't need to tell you that. Guilt makes people close in and shut people out. Guilt drives people away into isolation. They want to remove themselves from church. They want to remove themselves from life group. They want to remove themselves from any type of accountability, any type of person saying, hey, this might be an issue in your life. Can I pray with you? Can I pray for you? Can I be with you? Isolation, guilt, that's what it does. Guilt damages people and keeps those damages and those wounds from getting 
healed or being repaired. And most tragically, guilt keeps us from God's grace. In Isaiah 40 25, it says, I, even I am he who blots out your transgressions, sins, for my own sake, and remembers your sins no more. What does this mean? It means that Jesus has taken your guilt. Guilt is from sin, and sin leads to suffering and death, and Jesus suffered in our place and died in our place. Now, even though we still struggle against sin, there is no condemnation because in Christ, our conscience is set free, and we can freely go before our holy God in repentance. How awesome is that? Has anyone ever come to you with a guilty conscience? They can't even make eye contact. If you have children, you can see that. It happens like daily. They can't make eye contact with you. They know they've done something wrong. And for us, that's what we do with God too. We can't go to God. So what do we do? We say, I won't go to church. What do we do? We skip quiet time. What do we do? We stop praying. What do we do when, when we have a beloved brother or sister who calls and checks up on us? We say, cancel, 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 cancel. Until our voicemail is just, voicemail box is completely full. We don't want that because our eyes are set down and we're found guilty and we feel like we, don't, we can't go to God because we're unworthy. And the answer to that is, yes, you're right. You are unworthy, but because of Christ, he has given you freedom he has broken the chain of bondage of sin and guilt so that you can go before a holy God in repentance and receive forgiveness from him. You see, we always think that Satan always wants us to stumble. He doesn't just want you to stumble. He wants you to do something afterwards, and that is feel so guilty, so condemned that you won't go to God from that sin. Oh, but, but Pastor Day, I, 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 made, I, I slept with my girlfriend, and so I just feel so guilty. You know what? Saying he's not, he's not like rubbing his hands saying, oh, yes, I'm so glad he sexually stumbled. No, he, he, he's, try, he's working with, in your mind and your heart with the after, after effects or aftermath of what happened. That the pain, that, that sin, that guilt and shame will, will keep you from approaching the grace of God. But in Christ, we are no longer haunted. We're no longer accused by our past sins and our current struggles, but because we struggle every day, we must go before God every single day. Why do we need to remind ourselves of the gospel every day? But because we forget the gospel every day. And this is amazing grace, people. Because even in our church, and everywhere too, there are people with terrible pasts. We are people with tainted pasts. There are thieves and liars, people who have committed adultery, people who have had abortions, people who have done things that continue to haunt them, and yet we've gone so good at suppressing those thoughts and past actions that we can sit here smiling and happy as if it never happened. And so we think, if I just stop thinking about it, if I avoid any conversation or, or talk or movie or book or sermon that speaks of it, I'll be able to cope with my life and keep trucking along, but you can't. You can't unthink things. You can't undo things. You can't deny things. You can't, but here's the thing. God, he can wipe your slate clean. God is the one who blots out your transgression and he remembers your sins no more. All because of Jesus. Because of Jesus, we are totally forgiven because Jesus, he paid your debt and he took your guilt. That's right at the beginning of worship. And tell, tell me, be honest with me, how many, how many times have you come at the beginning of worship with a heavy heart, with a burdened heart? Maybe you got an argument with your spouse. Maybe you got an argument. Maybe someone cut you off on the way here, 
and you spewed out the string of swear words and these evil thoughts, and you're just having a hard time. Maybe this past week at work, it was just the worst time ever. Your boss is laying in you and everything. And so you come to church, and you're like, I just can't. I'm not in the zone. I can't worship and everything like that. But then after the sermon, through the response time, as we meditate on the gospel message, and as you repent to God, then afterwards, the last song, you can sit and stand there with a clear conscience. Why? Because you've been forgiven. Why? Because you're in his grace. Jesus has set us free from the guilt of sin. Now, my last point in that is that in Christ, we have the freedom to live in fellowship with our giver, with the maker, with our creator God. You know what's cool about the Bible? Everything, but is that there's a similarity to the first and last couple chapters of the Bible, Genesis and Revelation. The story begins in the garden where rivers are flowing and trees are bearing fruit. It's just lovely. It's just wonderful, right? And the story in Revelation ends in a restored, perfect garden, a, he- a heaven on earth type of, type of scene. And what's really awesome about the garden in Genesis was the fellowship that Adam and Eve had with God, their creator. God, he walked in the garden with them in the cool of the day, which is pretty awesome. But we all know what happened. Sin entered the picture and brought separation, alienation between them and God, us and God. They were kicked out of Eden, uh, out of Eden and they eventually died. But since then, God never gave up on his original plan, and now Christ, the second Adam, has come to bring restoration. So by his death and resurrection, the curse of sin is broken, and there will be a day when he will remove it completely and restore the whole creation. And right now, you and I, we're waiting for that day. How many times when you, see, when you, when you open up CNN.com or you watch the news and you see these horrific wars and, and, and famine and all these things going on in this world, you're thinking, God, when will you come? When you hear of sex trafficking going on even right outside our doors, you're asking, God, when will you come and bring justice? When you see the millions of, of babies being aborted and you're thinking, God, when will you come bring justice? And we're all waiting for that day, that day when, when there will be peace on earth, that day when God will bring justice, when, when Christ will be victorious completely here and all evil and wickedness will be vanquished. That day will come. But I want you to know that right now there has been a day, a moment even in your life of reconciliation that's already taken place and that's between God and you. That's God and you, the person who places their faith in Christ Jesus. And so by, so by the power of the Holy Spirit, God, he joins us to Christ, and we've all become a new creation where one day we'll all be part of the new creation that's to come. Jesus has set us free to have fellowship with him. If it's not with the world right now, it's at least with you right now. You can have fellowship with God. So praise God for the amazing freedom we receive in Christ. But Paul's not done, and neither am I. Paul warns us still. He says, look at all this freedom in Christ they can receive. Look at all the greatness of the freedom in Christ that is. But verse 7, Paul tells us that we're running a race, and in that race there was something that obstructed them or us. In other words, Paul's saying, hey, don't just blindly follow, but trust in the truth of the gospel. Don't disqualify yourself by placing your faith outside of Christ. Don't think that your spouse or that job or that home or that relocation or that zip code or that career or whatever is your savior. Don't think that by following all these rules and all these laws, by thinking that you're somehow better than or holier than the other person, that somehow that you're in a better place. No, he says, don't blindly just follow, but don't place your faith outside Christ. Trust Jesus. Trust Jesus, he says. Only Jesus. 
Paul keeps up with this warning in verse 9 where he used a familiar saying, a little leaven or yeast leavens a whole lump. Now, a lot of Paul's opposition thought he was being overly dramatic and making a mountain out of a molehill. But Paul knew that this was a slippery slope because it starts with circumcision. It'll lead to faithful discipleship in the law rather than Christ. So Paul uses this illustration to say that it takes a little bit to affect the whole batch. It just takes a little bit to affect the whole batch. So you see, folks, the problems and sins that we face in life are never things that begin big. Do you get what I'm saying? The issues that we have in our lives, our addictions, our habits, all these things that, that remove us and push us away from God, it never started big in our lives. It always starts with us moving away gradually from the truth, straying away from the marathon course and into small compromises. Think of it this way. If you miss a day at the gym, of the gym after going regularly, isn't it difficult to get back? By the way, I'm speaking to the regular people who'd rather do anything else but work out like myself. So for us mere mortals, it is truly difficult after missing one day of working, working out. Next thing you know, you look at your calendar and you've been gone a year. <laughs> no joke. I went back recently and they actually said, oh, welcome back. And I wanted to leave right then. It's like, how dare you? Where am I? Oh, okay. That's the thing with sin too. It's never just one day. You see, it doesn't just happen big. It starts with small compromises, and it grows into a full-time addiction and habit. And sadly, these habits, they chain us back to the world rather than free us. Christ will free you, but be warned, church. Sin is at your doorstep, ready to enslave you again. That is why you must remind yourself and immerse yourself and pray and meditate and just be with God every single day. And don't just rely on Sunday afternoons. Don't just rely on revivals and retreats and, and these every so often programs that we'll have at church to rekindle your passion for Christ. Every single day, the lion is outside your door ready to devour you. We must prepare ourselves. Verse 1 is the point and the summary of this entire sermon. It's also the very message that God has for all of us here today. It is for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit against the yoke of slavery. Find freedom in Christ and stand firm and do not submit against, uh, again to the yoke of slavery. So I ask you this and I end with this. What do you need to repent of? Well, how are you experiencing the freedom of Christ? Are you using your freedom to disobey God? and to not submit to the authority of God and his word? What is it in your life that you are compromising right now? Remember, it's not going to be big. It's going to start with something small. And don't ever think that whatever it is that's in your life, that it's something innocent and small. Don't even try to justify it. Because before you know it, it'll blow up into a full compromise in sin. And that sin will become harder and harder and more difficult to let go of. But by his grace, if you come before God today and every day after, and you come before his throne of grace, his kindness will lead you to repentance. And you will know that in Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we have been empowered to fight against sin and win because we possess the victorious strength in Christ Jesus. You believe that? 
What is it that's in your life right now? And that's something I want you to think of. Meditate on. But more than that, more than the, the, the weight of that sin, fixate and think and pray about the weight of God's grace. That his grace is sufficient. That he is here willing and wanting and so desperately wanting you, his child, to come back to him. And he says, you don't, meet, you don't need to be afraid. You don't need to allow guilt and shame to push you away. No, he goes, I want you to know that I, you can come to me and receive forgiveness. So let's take this time as we prepare for communion to bow our heads and to pray. So what is the Lord's Supper? What is communion? It is not some sort of arbitrary or passive tradition. It is spiritually active because it forces you and we, have, we probably haven't been doing this all week. I mean, when it comes to relationships or things that pique our interest, we may kind of pr- go about our day introspectively and think about it, but when it comes to our sins and the transgressions that we've committed against God, like how many times have we actually you know, found a, a, a quiet place and sought the forgiveness of the Lord? God is asking us to examine our own hearts. First of all, God, he already knows your heart. But he wants you to recognize it. What is in your life right now that you are compromising? That's the thing about sin, people. You give it an inch, it'll take your whole life. You have to even change your perspective about repentance. Repentance is not just a weighty, King David, uh, languishing type of, oh, woe is me type of thing. No, it is a refreshing thing. Repentance is refreshing. It is, it is reviving. It is rejuvenating. You see, repentance is a gift from God. Because to be able to repent says that we have a relationship with God. And as a child can come to their parents, so can we come to our Heavenly Father. Take a moment and pray that prayer, but tie it in with your prayer for the communion as well. Examine your heart. Because the Lord is asking us to do the same thing because we cannot go to the Lord's Supper while we are remaining and, and, ref- and refusing to budge in this, but to remain in our sins. God will not overlook our sins. So whatever it might be, you must give it up to him right now. Maybe it's anger or bitterness towards someone. Don't harbor it. Say, God, this is consuming my life. Maybe it's addiction to to sexual immorality or pornography or premarital sex, whatever it is, and all these things that are just making you physically compromise. And you know the Lord's plan for you. You know his divine decree for marriage. And
Ask him to forgive you and to cleanse you and to strengthen you. Remember the blood of Christ. The fact that he had to shed his blood to forgive you of your sin. God is asking you right now, keep your heart right. Get it right. And to get it right means to give it to God. Okay, so let's take a moment and pray. And after you're done praying, for those of you who profess faith in Christ Jesus and his work and in his perfect life, that he is your Lord and Savior, you can approach the communion table with as a child of God. And, and so let's go ahead and take a moment just to pray. I read from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23. For I receive from the Lord what I also deliver to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup, it's a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Dearly Father, we thank you for this moment, this most holy moment, to recognize, Lord, our depravity and the extent and the depth of our sins, but the extent and the depth of your grace. Father, you are a good God. You are a faithful God. And there's nothing, no one better than you. God, I pray that you would help us to refix our eyes upon your glory. And that we would know each and every day as we live and as we work and as we struggle that the things that we have around us, even people, Lord, pale in comparison to the worth of your glory. Father, I pray that every day you remind us through the gentle words in your scripture and by the tugging of the Holy Spirit that, Father, you are all that we need. In Christ, you are the satisfier. You are everything that we need. And to live in this world, Holy Spirit, you are everything we need. God, I thank you for this communion time. I thank you for opening our eyes to the reality of what our sins have committed 2,000 years ago, and that was it nails you to the cross. The cross that had my name on it, that had our name on it, and yet you took it from me. But not only the suffering and pain, but you took my guilt and shame. You have forgiven me so that I can approach the throne of grace each and every single day for the rest of my life. And know, Lord, that my conscience is clear and I can always come into the warm embrace of my heavenly Father who loves me and forgiven me. God, I thank you. Father, we know that we have sinned and we will continue to sin, but Lord, we also know that you have given us the power to overcome it. So I pray that you would help us in our struggles because you know the sins that we have.
and help us to come before you bare and naked. Father, we humbly come before you as individuals, but also as the EM ministry here. And we ask that you would just work through us, Lord, for your glory and for the sake of your kingdom. We thank you. And Jesus, we thank you. We do this in remembrance of your great sacrifice. In the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. Amen.